0: Hello, gorgeous friends, and welcome to the Embracing Enough podcast. You know, I've always said that women and girls have some incredible stories to tell. And that's what we do here. We share our stories in order for others to feel seen, heard, and hopefully less alone. This is your host, Dina Skippa, founder of Enough Labs, and I am so excited that you're here. And this is our fourth season I still can't believe it. When I started out this podcast, I had no idea of the types of stories that we would tell, and even more, the impact that we would have. And here we are, continuing to have some much needed conversations around our enoughness, our confidence, and how to own our truth. This season, well, we're doing things a little differently. Choosing to shine a spotlight on those who are brave enough to be called a disruptor. We're going deep with folks who have chosen to disrupt things for the better, even if it meant that they had to be the blueprint to do it. It's gonna get real over here, but the hope is that you walk away from each episode feeling more inspired to be a disruptor yourself, whatever that looks like for you, all while embodying the essence of joy, courage, and permission. Listen, I've been on my own journey of embracing my own enoughness, for a very long time. And this season, it just feels like perfect timing to unpack what being a disruptor looks like and how it connects to our own personal definitions of confidence. Let's get into it. All right, welcome back to another episode of Embracing Enough, the podcast brought to you by Enough Labs, and it is your girl, Dina. I am joined by an incredibly phenomenally brilliant woman, Gina Moffa, with us today, who is going to be talking to us about her path, her story, and all of the incredible expertise that she brings as a leading voice and expert in grief and trauma work. Just a couple of minutes before we hit record, I was obviously fangirling because I love what Gina stands for and everything that she has built and is continuing to build, but also because she is someone that I respect so deeply. Not only is she someone who I have been watching from behind the scenes, but I'm lucky enough to call her a friend. And I'm so honored to have Gina with us today. Gina, how are you?
1: Dina, I am so happy to be here with you. I have been counting down until I get to be on your podcast and sit with you here and, and have the conversations that matter. I know we have them a lot offline, but it's nice to be here with your community and you also. So thank you for having me. It's so great to be here with you.
0: Thank you. And at the time of recording... I have to say, I am beyond honored that I could be slated into Gina's very, very busy schedule. She is on the cusp of doing a ton of press, much needed conversation about her most recent contribution to the world, her book. Let's start off by just saying congratulations for bringing that to the world, which we are gonna get into, what it's about, and what the process even looked like.
1: Thank you so I'm much excited. what a whirlwind
0: <laughs> what a whirlwind well we will get into it let me just kick off by giving you all who are listening a little bit of insight into this powerhouse okay let me just give you a few bit of details about what this woman has created what her story is let me get into it so Gina Maffa, she is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in New York City, has traveled the globe studying and working with clients suffering and enduring traumatic loss. She's been in the field for over 17 years and she has helped thousands of people seeking treatment for grief and trauma. And this includes doing grief and trauma work with Holocaust survivors at 92Y, an international nonprofit, as well as being a clinical director for Mount Sinai Hospital Program in Manhattan. Gina is specialized and has extensive training in grief work, trauma, cognitive therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, internal family systems therapy, and mindfulness-based relapse prevention for substance use disorder, as well as depression. She maintains a full private practice on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And the majority of her practice consists of people seeking support and guidance for a major loss in their life, whether it's death, divorce, or even an unwanted life transition. And one of Gina's clinical passions is helping people to navigate their healing from loss and grief in a way that empowers them to find a new sense of fearlessness, understanding and meaning in the face of unpredictable grief. And I know that, in which I just shared at the end of her bio, is something that her and I have connected on so deeply. Isn't it a little crazy to hear your bio read like that? Like. All of the amazing accomplishments. Do you stand back and like that is me?
1: I didn't. I was like, who is she talking about? That is a lot of different things. They're not. They're all connected. But I'm like, wow, that's long. Who wrote that?
0: <laughs> they're all connected because they're all you. And crazy. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take it to a personal moment for a personal anecdote for a second. About what was it? Maybe a year and a half ago we were sitting in the bar at the Sofitel Hotel here in Washington DC over a glass of champagne celebrating just our own fabulousness and our own journeys and we were talking about these different versions of ourselves and how we were talking about how there's these different versions of me walking through DC, like the version of my 27 you know, year old self or my 34 year old self or my 18 year old self when I came to DC. And I just think how this interacts with this conversation around grief and transitions. And there's just so much that you've been unpacking over the better part of two decades that brings us to this very moment and all these versions of who Gina has been and now is and who you're becoming.
1: Oh my goodness yeah i remember sitting there and i remember us even thinking you know some chapters come to us by choice and some not so much and you know what do we make of that how do we make meaning from the chapters that change us involuntarily and it, it's so interesting and i you know one of the things that i feel so passionately about is is really teaching about grief because of how often we are grieving without knowing it, these, these new chapters, whatever they may be, whatever the ending is, it still needs to be attended to and honored because it was a part of what was, what was a part of what made us who we are. It's a part of that string that keeps us tethered to parts of ourselves. And so I remember that so well and, and really think, and I remember us talking about all the things that hurt us, That. You know, all of the endings that were forced upon us that we didn't want, you know, whether it was breakups or you know, family estrangements or you know, you know, job losses and it was just things that we thought were going to happen and then didn't mm. and in honoring the things and the grief of of the stuff we never got to have that we wish that we had. And so, you know, I think that's why I feel so passionately about, teaching about grief in this world because I just feel like we all think we're anxious and depressed and a lot of it is grief and so I just feel like we need to know more (laughs) we need to know more and the more we know as they say you know the better we can do
0: absolutely you were actually probably the first person that I felt gave me language and permission to call what I was feeling grief because I think, and tell me if this tracks, but I think the the more widely accepted concept of grief is when you've lost someone. It's the more understandable, socially acceptable context of grief. But grieving the thing that didn't come to fruition, I think for the longest time, I, like a lot of people I speak to, feel like it's not substantial enough to grieve, like it's not socially acceptable to grieve the thing that never came to pass. And you were the first person who gave me that kind of permission. I mean, and how, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, how have you been relating to that piece of the conversation around grief and loss? And, and do you find that other people have have had that sort of difficulty, that challenge in giving themselves that permission?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're a grief illiterate society. And part of why I wrote my book was so that we could actually give permission to people to look at their experiences in the light of fucking truth. And, you know, so many people sit in shame. You know, friendship loss is something really big coming to my practice right now. And people are like, is this grief? Is this like, should I be? I feel so ashamed. You know, people kind of look down on people who lose friends and, you know, they think there's something wrong with me, so I don't even want to talk about it. And anything that keeps us in a state of shame, which is, by the way, so many things, whether we get passed over for a job promotion, you know, whether that guy or that woman or whomever, that person that we really like doesn't like us back or You know it could be all of the things uh you know even the fear that i had of not not getting a book deal one day and and not being sure that my voice could be in the world like whatever it may be the things that we hold as significant to us that we don't get that haven't got longed to get um they're all so so worthy Of being looked at in the light of day, which is in a state of grief. Mm -hmm. And the more that we could really look at things in the truth, the more we can take a step towards the more authentic way of healing and the more authentic path for us. Um, Otherwise, we get really stuck in the state of judgment and self-aggrandizement, you know, self-loathing and confusion because we don't know what it is that we're experiencing. And a lot of that really started even more with COVID because we were all collectively grieving and yeah I mean we were, col- we were collective- collectively grieving of course millions of deaths and, and devastating losses in that way but more than not many of us were grieving every portion of our lives that had changed mm-hmm. and would never be the same again. And, you know, and I think that was, that is, and continues to be so worthy of us to start talking about and changing the way that we look at grief is one of my biggest passions. Like Mm -hmm. I am tired of society dictating what we are allowed to grieve. I'm tired of it. And I'm going to spend the rest of my days trying to work on this, whether through my own individual work or community work, like I am doing or policy work, hopefully in the future, I'm done. I'm ready for us all to have our due in terms of respect of our process and what we're grieving. It's the most universal human wound and enough is enough with the rules, the boundaries, and the, the limitations. You are... Sorry, I
0: had to go on my rampage. Listen, but... it's so funny you mm-hmm. just said sorry because I was like, absolutely no no need for apologies. Actually, it's a rule here on the podcast and we don't apologize because you, you of all people are one of the most unapologetically honest voices that I look to for, you know, daily, just for your inspiration and your insights. And I also think that, as we were chatting before we hit record, that it's, to me, you are a disruptor. To me, you are disrupting the landscape of where typically and traditionally grief has been held. And where, like you just pointed out, how much shame there is in not allowing ourselves to feel the depth of whatever pain we're experiencing. Something that I value inside of our friendship through the voice notes to whenever we get a chance to see each other in person, is that you are someone, when I think of my list of people, you are just always there to meet people where they are, without that shame. and. Gina, it's rare, it's so rare. And I'm just, you know, here on the podcast, the reason why, you know, Enough Labs and I have created the space in the way that I have is because it's a space to honor people's stories. So I'd love to kind of take a step back and ask, how did you become this beautiful safe container to hold the stories for people? Tell us a little bit about your story. Who is Gina? Oh and my how did goodness. you come here? <laughs> how did you get here? Well,
1: I was, I was born on August 4th. <laughs>
0: in all of that wild Leo energy.
1: <laughs> in all of my wild Leo energy, I was two weeks late. I was very comfortable in the womb, and I was supposed to be a cancer. Um, instead of, I'm a cancer rising up. Um, you know, the funny thing is, a lot like you, my path was a lot along the lines of political science early on. So uh, I, I've had sort of a really funny trajectory. It was, you know, I always thought as a kid, I was going to be a famous Broadway singer. So music was always my, you know, my joy and what I thought I was going to be doing up until I was, you know, I don't know, 18 or 19. And, you know, that alone is sort of listening to stories and taking on stories and and being somebody who can translate story right through song or, or action or, you know, whatever acting you're doing. But beyond that, you know, I found I should say I fell into um, kind of an international relations major when I was in, which is always very confusing to people. But within that, you know, I did a lot of international work, and it was always the stories that I was listening to, whether I was working with asylum seekers, whether I was in community settings, in an orphanage, in a, in a girls' school in Africa. It was the stories. And when I was thinking about law school and going to be a lawyer, it was still the stories. It was how do we – how is resilience formed? How do we go on when the most at- – The most atrocious, traumatic things happened to us. That was my passion. And so I wound up going in a more clinical direction because I wanted to know the answers to these things. But but deeper than that, I wanted to be a part of helping to get to that place. And so I wound up um, going to NYU for, for my graduate studies and came out knowing that I wanted to do work in trauma. New York City had just endured September 11th. And it was the first time that we really understood what PTSD was as a nation. It was something that we knew about, of course, clinically, but it was always really equated with war syndrome um, started around the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And so when it became something that is now widespread, you know, a, a widespread experience people are having, it really opened up, you know, and still at that particular time, there weren't a lot of programs that had Trauma as a you know as a specialty, but there was one, and it was um, at the time it was at the New York School NYU School of Medicine, and um, I was one of not many people who got in. I don't know how it worked, but I did, (laughs) and I wound up studying trauma. And so from then on, from two thousand and five onward, you know I became a trauma specialist in my field. But what always really surprised me was that no matter which trajectory I took in trauma, whether it was International trauma, and you know um, survivors of torture and genocide, or it was Holocaust survivors shortly after that, or even working and training clinicians in substance um, use programs. To me, one of the things that was always left out was grief, and you know that people aren't doing things or surviving things without some kind of lasting effect. There's there's that before and an after, and it, it to me grief is trauma's sister and you know you don't have trauma without grief and loss you can sometimes have grief without trauma but i most of the time i think that even in the very fresh moments of a loss there's a a moment of trauma because your brain is actually trying to wrap itself around this you know this new beginning and this like what next moment um but yeah so i found my way and found my way to where i am you know through you're really just wanting to know people's stories and, and wanting to connect to them, to be real and to be a part of hopefully what is, what was healing for them down the road or, you know, and so that's kind of how I wound up there. Mm. <laughs> and I, I I always say I fell into it, you know, everyone's like, how did you get into it? Well, I, I kind of fell into it all, you know, I really believe this is where I'm meant to be because it feels like almost a direct line to whatever god may be in there you know like whatever the whatever that divine kind of connection feels like it's like i wake up every day and i'm like please let me be of use in the way that i need to be and i don't know who i'm saying that to but it's sort of my daily my daily mantra to the world at at large please let me be of use in whatever way whatever way is needed most from me and, you know, you know, and that be my heart and it's loving, you know, and, and giving. And that's, that's sort of where I am now. And it's, and it's so in connection with loss and grief and especially with it becoming something that so many people are now starting to understand that they have been experiencing more and more.
0: You've given so many people language, a framework to follow. And I love what you shared about your love of storytelling from the stage all the way to now today and and holding people's stories, being a safe container for for people's sort of reconciliation with their stories and, and stepping outside of the shame that's attached to a lot of our stories. But then I also see this now present chapter that you're in, Talk to us about the book. You are, to me, an embodiment of a disruptive truth teller. Like ripping the veil off of, let's talk about grief in a real fucking way. Talk to us about moving on doesn't mean letting go. Talk to us about the process, what it's felt like to bring all of these stories that you've been holding to book form. Because I feel like that's what oh my goodness. I feel like yeah. that's a little bit of what it's about, perhaps. Like you've been holding these stories for the better part of like a decade plus.
1: The book process has been oh quite a journey. But one of the things you know, for me during COVID, I you know I had my phone ringing off the hook all the time. There was obviously so much loss and. I'll be honest, not a lot of grief therapists, even in New York City. And so I was, which I didn't really know or understand um, until I was getting a lot of phone calls and, you know, volunteering with two organizations and, you know, doing my best, even with friends and family friends on social media to be as supportive as possible. But I had so many people coming to me in a state of crisis and And yet I knew that we didn't have a manual right now, not that, not something modern, not something that can really help someone in fresh grief. As soon as you're, you know, going through this loss, like you get to this place and you say, now what, what next? I have had this loss. I've had this, you know, this loss and and I don't even know what it means. And, you know, one of the things that I was saying to you earlier with COVID was it became so apparent that loss was everywhere you know people were calling me they just started a business and you know covid came and now that's it their business is gone they lost everything you know they were stuck inside with someone they were engaged to and they realized they're really not good together after all (laughs) you know or it became really toxic and off they went you know friendships are You know, our family estrangements. You know, we were in a state of also grieving leadership. We didn't have any clear leadership. We had somebody telling people to inject Clorox inside of them. I mean, there wasn't any real path towards understanding. And so we were grieving in all of these different ways. And it was the first time I could could say that we had tangible, tangible, collective examples of how grief has infiltrated each of our lives. And if you didn't personally lose something, you knew someone who did, whether it was a person, family member, pet. I mean, there were so many things happening. And for me, I wanted to write something that spoke to all of this and that taught people what their experience was, that helped them to understand what they were going through so that we could normalize it, you know? And we could say, hey, I understand if you're working and you don't even have time to breathe, it's okay okay that you're not grieving right now for some people this is a luxury you know for some people that were in healthcare or you know delivering food or cooking food for people there were so many people you know driving ubers there were service people that weren't getting any real help but really going through it and i just felt like we needed we needed something that can help people understand more and and respect what they were going through Um, and, and even if it was a death related loss, maybe they lost someone that they didn't, they, they had an abusive relationship with or that it wasn't so great and it was really complicated. And how do we do that? And how do we grieve and date again when this is all over? And how do we grieve and go back to work? And how do we say no to that wedding in a way that's loving and we don't get in trouble for it or lose a friend or, and what does it mean about us if we do start losing friends? I mean, these were all questions that i had but also that were coming to me and i felt like we really needed we really needed an answer and it's really funny because the imposter syndrome that you and i talk about a lot
0: all the time
1: in this process all the time all the time and you know even even now it's now it's 20 years of me being in this field and even after 20 years in this field i still feel that sense of imposter syndrome right And so I had a client, you know, they were like, can you recommend some books? Another client was like, look, I need something more than this weekly therapy because I'm in it. I'm in it. Give me some books. And I was referring all these books and they would come back and say it was was a fine book, but I don't see myself in it. It didn't really give me anything practical to look at. I'm not getting anywhere. I'm feeling worse. And one client was like, but you know, maybe you should write the book because you are giving us tools. We, you're, you're giving me tools every week, and maybe if you could just do some more of that, <laughs> maybe you could do it. And it was sort of the first time that I thought, wait, what? Maybe me? I don't know. You know. And then I was like, wait a minute, I've been in the trenches, I've been doing this work. It's not like I haven't been doing it. It wouldn't be an imposter, <laughs> it would be me. Who cares? And then who is doing this work every day? And so I started the process, and that's really how you and I met. And, you know, really trying to write a book proposal and start to imagine, you know, it's much more emotional than it is anything else. You know, could we imagine something that we're doing out in the world in this way? And it was really, I don't even know, it was really something, but made the proposal, somehow got an agent and somehow got a book deal and the book started to take form. And, you know, I think, when you are so passionate about something, you almost want to put everything you know into this book. And so it was almost something where I was like, whoa, this is being, this is now going to be overwhelming. And if I have brain fog and grief, I'm going to be really overwhelmed by this. So how can I write a book for people who have brain fog that has enough information that they can learn and grow and change and find a way towards healing, but not overwhelm them in the process? and you know and not make it too simple but make it you know at least in in educational and engaging enough and so it was a really fine line with that and i decided that i was just going to be me and i would be the therapist in the book that i am in my office every single day and i would just do as much as i can to do the things and say the things i would say and you know and and recommend the things i would recommend and suggest all the things, even having my weird little sense of humor in there. And and so that's kind of what the book finally morphed into. And I can say that it is as close to being in therapy with me as one can get. And that's kind of what I wanted for people who don't have access to therapy or, or specialized therapy or people who aren't sure about therapy because maybe they haven't ever, you know, had a good experience with it or haven't known anyone to have a good experience with it, or maybe it's not in their culture that people go to therapy. And so, you know, I wanted to say, hey, if you're ever thinking about it, or you need extra help, and you need support, and maybe clinical therapy is something you should do or look into, and here I am. Mm. Here's this book, um, which does whatever a book can do, right? It's Mm. It's not the savior, and it's not everything, but my hope is that it can be a soft landing for people who are in the throes of A really major and significant change challenge loss of any kind Um, and that's my hope my hope is that it just lands in the hands and the heart of somebody who might need it Mm.
0: what a gift yeah what a gift I will say congratulations again I will never stop celebrating you because and I talked about this on the most recent episode of embracing enough is that what you just explained, coming to the place where you could give yourself permission to insert Gina, to just have it be the closest thing that you can get to being in therapy with you, is, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's also kind of scary. Like to really just put yourself out there and just be you and no pun intended, but let that be more than enough. Sort of yeah. writing this tome of sorts <laughs> next to reconciling those feelings of imposter syndrome that come up, and also recognizing, of course, it would be me that would write this. Of course, why why wouldn't it be me? So there's just so much that's that's Mixed in there about what it looks like to tell The truth that you feel needs to be shared. Can you talk to us a little bit about what at times some of those moments felt like? of like Recognizing that 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 challenge that's thrust upon you and being like and I still am here
1: (laughs) Oh my goodness I had so many challenges writing this book. I should also add that I tell the story of losing my own mother, Mm. um, which is about to be seven years now, but um, really, and how I was working in trauma and grief at the time and still failed miserably at it, you know, and so I had a lot of major losses um, all in one week. Um, and so I talk about that in my book, you know, I lost my mother, my job, my apartment, um, my health and a restaurant that I used to go to (laughs) religiously and all in a week. And, um, and so I talk about that and sort of, in, in a way it's not a crisis of faith, but really it was, it was a crisis of being present, um, and trying to figure out how to grieve as a grief therapist who thought she didn't have to grieve because she was a grief therapist, and so, so, I you know I what I have to say about that is it was incredibly vulnerable, right? Because I am therapist, and my clients are reading this book, and you know, and future clients to to say you know, hey, yes, I do work with grief. I've also been around the block myself, and here's how clumsily I grieved, even though I had all of these years. You know, at the time, I guess it was well over a decade of experience. But you know, I don't. I didn't know what I didn't know until I knew it. And you know, losing my mother, who was somebody that helped, was my lighthouse, was a really pivotal time in my life, and really changed the trajectory of how I practiced and how I approached and engaged grief, both with myself and my clients. And so, yeah. So showing up and sort of retelling that story, you know, I retell the week um, that she died and you know all the things I wish could have been different and all of the ruminations and all of that is a really it was really hard for me to sort of relive that in that way you know I started to you know and I and I think the relationship continued to evolve the relationship between my mother and I despite the fact that she's dead you know that that people can die but the relationship doesn't and so in the writing of this book the relationship continued to evolve and the the things that I had felt guilty over, you know, I really got a chance to process and work through that with myself in, in the midst of this. And I think I just wanted it to be as honest as I possibly could be, because I am asking other people to show up in this book and be honest. And so if that's the case, I too must show up and be honest. You know, I always say to my clients that you have one job as a client in my practice to show up on time and tell the truth. I guess that's two jobs so (laughs) show up on time and tell the truth and that's it and the rest of it we got you know and so I had to take that I had to take that advice myself Um, but also in the midst of writing my book I did lose a client to um, Mm -hmm. a very very sudden illness um, and a young vibrant client that I saw on Monday and was gone by Friday and that sort of threw me for a loop too. You know, I I love my clients very much. They're people that I take in, in my heart, you know, and so that was hard. And so I was writing a book on grief. I was working in grief all day. I was processing my own mother loss, and then I lost a client. And so I have to say, I mean, it was a time of a lot of cookies and... really needing some comfort and feeling a little bit off kilter. A lot of the time it was winter in New York city um, while I was writing this and losing someone, and it was lonely and it was really hard, you know? And yet to me, I felt like, okay, this is, this is, this is the process. Like this is the path. This is the shedding. This is the unveiling. Like you said earlier, this is the courage you know, and it's, and it's, the courage is not just about what we show, but how we show up, and that we show up, even when we don't want to, and, you know, it doesn't matter what we look like when we show up, it's that we show up, and, and, yeah, and it was really hard, I'll be honest, I'll be really honest, it was, but, but what I can say about it is that, you know, as cliche as it sounds, that my heart and my soul is in this book, and all I really want from this book is to be one of the books that people choose when they're in a state of loss and grief, and that I am a part of a bigger conversation and a part of somebody's being able to do something they thought they couldn't. Mm. And that would be it for me. That would be enough.
0: I love that. And that is so enough. You know, as I listen to you share about these moments that undoubtedly rocked you to your core, know the moments in life and then having to relive them process them and share them with the world I also think about the connection of perfectionism inside of the process and I know that you and I are like completely kindred spirits on the plane of I'm living this out in real time and yet people are perhaps looking to me to share my insights or, you know, it's one of the most vulnerable, gut-wrenching experiences to be very much close to the process of navigating what you're navigating and also being a leading voice inside of it. One of the things that I feel like I'm taking away from the book and this massive conversation, dare I say, movement, is that both inside of what you're talking about and what I'm talking about through Enough Labs is permission to do it imperfectly. Like there's no rule book, at least from my vantage point and from everything I I take in from you is that you don't have to grieve perfectly. You don't even need to have everything make sense and be clear about how you're relating to it. And I think there's this sort of society You can't. There's this societal expectation that we have to get through it quickly.
1: And that is the, my biggest Yeah. I can't even call it a pet peeve yeah. because it's bigger than that. Right. But you know, I was talking with somebody and thinking, when did this all start? That we have to be either pick yourself up by your bootstraps and do it neatly and do it quickly mm. and do it quietly and just get her done. When did we become this like was it industrialization like what happened and when did we become just robots you know when did our attention span drop to 7 seconds you know we are we are not evolving in a beautiful way as a species we just aren't and and i'm disappointed in us but i do have hope <laughs> i do have hope because i can't say that we're getting more patient but i can say that we are really trying to figure out how to show up for ourselves and others in a new way, and I can't say that it's it's filled with you know sunshine and flowers and country music. I don't listen to country music, but if I, <laughs> but it's always telling a long story. Of course, so um, <laughs> it's always a long story. But I think you know. What I, I, I have no idea why society is this way, but it is, it is something that if I could pick us up and shake us as a species and say, you know, no one is getting out of here untouched by loss. No one is getting out of this world untouched by tragedy. No one is getting by untouched by challenges that shake us to our very fucking foundation. So let's wake up and come together and do better for each other. And if you want it done faster, then do it together. Figure out how to touch that person's broken heart and soul. Figure out how to get that casserole to them and really go out of your way and not be totally spooked by their loss because you think you're gonna catch it. We're done. We have to do better for each other. If we want it done faster, we want it done more efficiently, we have to do it together. We have to. And that is the only way to change society. Because the more people that come together as a community and start doing it differently and start doing it right and start doing it totally fullheartedly, the more that we will be able to create a chain reaction that gets society on board and says, oh, all right, this is the way it's gonna be done now. Yeah. This is the way that people want it. And I can't say that it will happen overnight, but I do believe that it just starts with the group of individuals who will not say no. Mm. They will not sit there and say, okay, I'm just going to go with this. Whatever whatever we have to do and as efficiently as we can, I'll, I'll be mm-hmm. there. I'll, I'll watch people tapping their mm. watches. Enough. These are broken hearts. We are people. Yeah. We are not robots. We are not AI as much as society would like us to be that way. And we have to come together and do better for each other.
0: You know, I'm, I'm moved by this piece that you just shared, saying that no one gets out of this unscathed. No one is able to like, avoid tragedy and loss. And if it's going to take that like proverbial shakeup where we need to be, be better and do better by other people, I almost want to offer in this moment that we have to start with ourselves. Because if we know that that experience is going to meet us, if we are unable to exercise that level of compassion for ourselves, to have that patience beyond the seven second rule, like then how are we ever going to be able to access the capacity to do it for people that we love? And I feel like it's that inability to be, to like extend ourselves the grace and, and but instead choose to live by, you should be over it by now. This shouldn't bother you that much. Why are you still grieving? Why are you still so rocked by this? And I think that's the piece that we talk about, you know, loneliness inside of the grieving process that that truly breaks my heart. Because so many people are suffering in silence because there is so much of that shame, but also, some of that self gaslighting that it's like, why am I still rocked by this? Which I think is one of the most insidious, pervasive parts of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You are quoting directly from my book, which talks about self gaslighting and self compassion. Yeah, All of it. So
0: why is it so hard? You've gotten to that chapter. I haven't gotten to that chapter yet. (laughs) Why is it so hard, Gina?
1: It's hard because we're conditioned little animals. You know we have been conditioned whether or not we want to admit it we want to say that we're so individual you know and that we've broken through and we've broken the mold but we are not in some ways we have right we could wear our outfits and use creativity in a way to set ourselves apart but at the end of the day we don't always believe that we are allowed to do it differently we don't always believe that we can do it differently. And I think that we are so afraid of being left in the dust that we, we become part of that flow, except the flow is in the wrong direction <laughs> at the wrong speed, you know? And, and that's why, I mean, we're conditioned little animals. I'm sorry to say it that way, but we are. I mean, if you really think about it, look at the people who do it differently and how stigmatized they are. Yeah. You know I think about Sinead O'Connor who wanted to do things her way who was as sensitive of a beautiful soul as possible and how she was so marginalized in every possible way to the point that she couldn't handle it anymore and lived with this depth of of you know and I, of grief really which is I think what in the end is what became of her was mm-hmm. grief strickenness and I I don't believe that. I mean, she talked about that. And I and I think that if society could have done better at caring for her, and I say this with so many people, famous or not, we could have done better if we could have had more patience, if we could say this person's doing it differently and we're going to do our best to meet them there. Maybe we would all stand a chance. But we really do, and I don't say this to be sad and, and all of it, but I really think it's a wake-up call. If we want to disrupt things, it's really hard to do it alone and you know and we therefore do find a way to gaslight ourselves and we do lack compassion because we don't know how to do it alone and if if everybody's doing it in a different way I mean we've been conditioned I I, you know we really have been conditioned by greater society for many 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 hundreds of years to, to stay in line and when you step out of line this is where the trouble begins and And I'm saying we all have to step out of line. We all have to keep stepping out of line and continue to step out of line together because we need to save one another. Mm. And in doing so, we do save ourselves.
0: So beautiful. So I look at you, not only as a friend, but also as a teacher inside of this. And so, I'm. but I am genuinely curious though, inside of the persona that you embody as the teacher i can only imagine that you were also a student in this process of writing the book what do you think was the biggest lesson that you learned throughout it and that where you kind of became the student again
1: i'm always a student
0: dina
1: <laughs> i'm the student of my clients right i'm always learning everywhere i go i'm learning i'm looking to learn i am have- always a student. Um, I try very hard to live mindfully so that I continue to get the lessons that are all around us at all times, whether it's the subway in New York City here or someone at the bodega around the corner, you know, I'm always like, okay, that's really great. I don't ever profess or believe that I am solely the teacher um, mm-hmm. and I am just giving what I learn. But I would say that throughout this book writing process, it has been Consistently about breaking through the fear of truth-telling and you know the more that I tell people to tell the truth and I was very very afraid to tell the truth you know for you know and not the truth but to share you know because I'm a therapist and we're not really sharers I mean I share things that are important but I don't sit and talk about my life with my clients you know and so it's a really new and because I've been doing it so long it's a really uncomfortable thing to share something so vulnerable um with the entire world so i think for me one of the biggest challenges was was breaking through the the fear of telling the truth and telling my story and and telling even sometimes you know how my mom thought i was weird or you know whatever it was the things i miss about her you know that that vulnerability and saying kind of where i am now in my life and and sharing little details about myself that. I'm, I'm kind of private, you know, I'm, I'm open, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm open about a lot of things when people ask me, but I don't volunteer a lot of information just because I've been conditioned not to, right? It's not important. Nothing is about me. When I'm in the room, it's not about me. So I, um, I forget to share, you know, and so it's really uncomfortable sometimes to have the attention just on me, even mm-hmm. in these podcasts, like hearing the stuff and I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, Gina, take a breath she's saying something nice, and it's okay, (laughs) you know, and, and yet it's the truth, the truth is the stuff that we're talking about, and so, um, I think that was one of my biggest challenges, was really, really feeling the fear of that vulnerability, and knowing that it had a higher purpose, and, you know, I would want to read a book on grief by somebody who had been grieving, you know, if somebody never lost anybody, I would be like, well, what do you know? You know, but, you know, I do talk about multiple losses and life-changing losses in my books. So it's, and 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 part of it is to say, look, I get you. I've been there too. Um, and some of it is to, is for me to have worked through myself in a way I hadn't been able to before, hadn't given myself permission to work through. So a lot of my sharing of my own story in the book is really about my own catharsis, mm. And really my own kind of re not not reanalyzing but really kind of reliving and rethinking about my own experience of loss and you know with some space between my loss and today so it's, it was a really humbling experience Dina I have to be honest yeah. and it continues to be continues. and maybe that's what this is all about you know
0: I think what's so fascinating and kind of makes me laugh at <laughs> the ways in which you shared that in terms of how we're going to get through normalizing this conversation on grief is doing better and being better for other people. And I think throughout this book process, the way you've been sharing with your community and through social media is how beautiful it's been for how people get to show up for you, Gina. Hmm.
1: Shocking. <laughs>
0: Look at that. It was
1: so shocking. Is it
0: shocking or is it exactly what you needed?
1: Well, I think both. Okay. I think it was both. Yeah. You know, I I think I really didn't expect, uh, you know, I guess I didn't expect people to share it or have so much enthusiasm. I didn't expect people to take a picture with their book and send it to me. That to me is attention and time that people are taking out of their day to do something for me. And I don't want to say I'm not used to it, but I'm not so used to it. I get it. So it really blew me away that people were so kind and you know that even people would buy my book is such a generous offering towards me and towards what I want to represent in the world. And so, you know, there's a lot of books on grief and a lot of great books on grief. So the fact that somebody would choose mine is a gift to me. I don't take it for granted whatsoever. So People showing up and buying it, and it was—it um, <sighs> was mind-blowingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, even I saw my book this week in the Barnes and Noble window here in New York City, and it was just like—I don't even know. I was standing on the street and people were walking by, and I was like, "Hey, excuse me, this is my book. And <laughs> hey, I wrote that book." you know and seeing people say wow congratulations that's so great what a feat or how wonderful to see that you must be really you know your your dream must be coming true just pure strangers having pure kindness toward me and i was such a dork you know like hey i'm so sorry to bother you but that's my book <laughs> it was really funny it was really funny but it was it was really i mean i have to say like my heart is so full and I'm I'm still less than a week out from pub day, so I'm still really feeling it and hoping that this feeling stays around for a while because it hasn't felt this good in a while. Mm,
0: It's amazing. And I know that feeling of crossing sort of the the milestone and and really wanting that feeling to uh, stick around. And I think if I can offer that making sure that that feeling sustains takes, effort and takes intentional sort of care to reminding yourself to celebrate and you know I wish I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this conversation although I know it's one of many conversations we're gonna be having I'm gonna be in New York in a few weeks to be celebrating you at your book release party I'm so excited um on the topic of celebration there's one person that I wish was here, that I could ask her how proud and how she's celebrating you. And I know that she is. And if if you could think of anything that she could say, your mom, to you, inside of this process, now being across the finish line of publishing day, what do you think she would say to you?
1: Oof, you know, it's so bittersweet, you know, because I think if she were alive, I would not have written this book. Mm. And so it's a book that's both for her, but because of her. And, um, I, you know, and I feel bad for her because I, I've needed her help and I've kept her busy.
0: And she's <laughs> and been showing saying, up. I don't know.
1: she has shown up time and again. And I think, you know, one of the things I, I remember kind of putting my hand on my heart and hearing is we did it, G like we did it G and um yeah and I and I because it was so much a collaborative effort you know of her being with me and my saying mom I need your help with this chapter and you know mom mom, could you just could you just help me get through this day or mom I need some cookies whatever it may be (laughs) and you know I don't know where you are mom but wherever you are can you come down here and help me? I'm freaking out. am not feeling good enough. I'm really like um, questioning the whole thing. I, I think I should quit. <laughs> I'll give back my advance. It's totally fine, you know. Like, you know, and and so I, she's she's been with me every step of the way, and I I really do believe that she would have said we did it because her name is not on this book with mine, but it is so much a part of her too. And, um, and it's so bittersweet because she would have been the first call. She would have been the most proud, the cheerleader. Um, and, and so I have to, I have to embody that for her. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful. You
1: brought tears to my eyes. (laughs) That
0: was not, that was not the the point, but I I felt like I could, I couldn't have this conversation with you about your story about the stories that are part of the book without honoring her. And I haven't known you for that long, but I feel like I've known you forever. And to know you, Gina, I think is to also know your mom, because she comes through you in all of the way that you share about her. And (laughs) it's like she's your muse. And I think on some level it's my heart burst. I know, but I think and and I think on some level you were and are hers. And I think it's just such a beautiful embodiment of co-creation. And my hope, my forwarding message to you is I hope you keep celebrating. Mm-hmm. I just hope you never stop celebrating how massive this is and how wildly enough you are to keep being this voice because the conversation around grief is layered and complex and needs some people who are brave enough to shake some shake some shit up. <laughs>
1: Ooh, I love it. Now who wants to join me?
0: Listen, I'm... I am I'm,
1: making applications. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm standing right there with you to weed them out. I'm clapping,
1: I'm clapping. Yes, I need you. You are one of the change makers in this world that I look up to Mm. and that I look to Mm. to see what's going what's she gonna do now what (laughs) what's she up to now that's gonna make waves in this world and so you know I love that I get to be your friend in all of this and get to admire you you. only a couple hundred miles away
0: (laughs) only from a couple hundred miles away (laughs) it's nothing um where can people follow you buy your book continue to be a part of this conversation let us know
1: well I would be honored for any of those um, you can find me on Instagram at Gina Maffa LCSW um, there's my website Gina and and um, my books can be found literally anywhere you buy books um, if you're an Amazon person Amazon has it if you like independent bookstores any independent bookstore, bookshop.org, um, anything like that. Um, it is also at target and, um, Barnes and Noble and all of that. So, um, yeah, who knew, <laughs> but yes, I would love, I would love it if anybody would be in touch with me in, in any way. So, Amazing. and thank you Dina so much for doing this, for having me. I wanted to be here with you in your space having tea for a very long time so you made this girl's dream come true I'm so
0: glad and to continued celebrations and even more wins can't wait for us both
1: and for us all
0: for us all Thank you. hello gorgeous friends and welcome to the Embracing Enough podcast. You know, I've always said that women and girls have some incredible stories to tell. And that's what we do here. We share our stories in order for others to feel seen, heard, and hopefully less alone. This is your host, Dina Skippa, founder of Enough Labs. And I am so excited that you're here. And this is our fourth season. I still can't believe it. When I started out this podcast, I had no idea of the types of stories that we would tell, and even more, the impact that we would have. And here we are, continuing to have some much needed conversations around our enoughness, our confidence, and how to own our truth. This season, well, we're doing things a little differently. Choosing to shine a spotlight on those who are brave enough to be called a disruptor. We're going deep with folks who have chosen to disrupt things for the better, even if it meant that they had to be the blueprint to do it. It's going to get real over here, but the hope is that you walk away from each episode feeling more inspired to be a disruptor yourself, whatever that looks like for you, all while embodying the essence of joy, courage, and permission. Listen. I've been on my own journey of embracing my own enoughness for a very long time. And this season, it just feels like perfect timing to unpack what being a disruptor looks like and how it connects to our own personal definitions of confidence. Let's get into it.